Well, let me add my good morning to everybody here, everybody who's watching online. It's good to see all of you. And would you join me as we do each week in opening up our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. If you want to follow along in a Blue Pew Bible, you can. Uh, You can find Acts 17 on page 926. Uh, So for the past five years, uh, we have started our fall ministry season with a vision sermon series. And that began back in 2016. Uh, At the time, I was just months away from transitioning uh, from being the associate pastor at Grace to the senior pastor at the ripe age of 28. And uh, at that time, the elders and the uh, ministry staff, a staff which consisted of three people at the time, uh, really just were having discussions about who we are, uh, what we are doing, and most importantly, why are we doing it. And uh, what happened was those discussions led to the conviction that we should do a sermon series around this uh, that in 2016 we called Why Church? And it became a rhythm that we have now maintained going into our sixth straight fall. Um, And each year we kind of approach it from a slightly different angle or emphasis based upon what uh, we are hearing from the Lord in that season. Uh, Because the reality is, as a church community, we are constantly engaged in the work of the ministry, aren't we? Like it is just kind of nonstop, week in, week out, in our ministries, programs, in our relationships. Uh, We are seeking to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and, and to be equipped through that to make him known. And what happens is that when you're in the trenches of just doing ministry, if you will, uh, a church that seeks to be healthy needs to occasionally and intentionally kind of zoom out and evaluate the big picture and and just ask some questions of ourselves, like, like, how are things going? Uh, What what kind of things can we affirm here at Grace? What, What can we be honest about where we have strayed from the path? Where have we gotten distracted? Has anything gotten out of whack in us that needs to be corrected? Anything that's weakened that needs to be strengthened? Because while while most of the time is spent in your ministry, occasionally you need to work on your ministry. You know what I mean? And by the way, that's not just true for churches. I think any organization, any company, any marriage, uh, any individual in just your own life where you're constantly on the go, especially in our area, it's nonstop all the time, we kind of need to step back and say, How are we doing? Has anything changed that we need to be aware of and adjust to? Um, Last year, some of you might recall if you were here, we did a vision series called Reset. And what we really came to the conviction of there was that in the difficulty that the pandemic brought about, uh, certainly in many ways for our staff, the most challenging year of ministry uh, that we've ever had, uh, we, we took the opportunity to step back and ask some questions. Uh, which led to the conviction of the fact that we at Grace did not want to be a church in the season that was just kind of waiting to restart, waiting to restart, but actually working to reset. And so we simplified our vision statement last year. We tried to align everything with it, and we stepped into the season saying, God, we are ready for whatever you want to do in and through Grace Church in this next year. And what happened was the hardest and most challenging year of ministry, which was true, also proved to be the most fruitful year of ministry for Grace Church in terms of growth and fruitfulness in, in amongst our body. And so now we, here we are, a year later, 
And we're going to begin a four-week series called Refocus, okay, from reset to refocus. And here's the reason why, Uh, because now that we have reset our vision, we must now ensure that we are fighting for clarity and being focused to, as to, how that vision is going to play itself out in our given context, that we are not just a local church, but we are a local church in northern New Jersey in 2021. So we believe all churches and all places have the same calling, to glorify God by making disciples, right? We don't choose that. We didn't come up with that in a back room somewhere. God chose that. But the context a church is in, the location and the time is always going to be different. So, so Grace Church, here's my question for us this year as we begin a new vision series. Do we know what it looks like to make disciples of Jesus Christ where we are? Not in general, are we focused on where we are here, now? You know, when, when taking a picture, because now we're all, you know, cameramen and camera women, because we all have it in our pocket, when taking a picture, it's possible that a camera could be pointed at the right object, but to lose focus, which then leads to a blurry image. Uh, so this past summer, uh, I brought Caden, he, he just turned seven at the end of the summer, but um, for his birthday, we brought him to his first uh, Major League Baseball game. This was a moral decision for me, we're Yankees people in our house, uh, I brought him to a Mets game. All right, I, I think it was my brother had a kind of, who's a Mets fan, had a kind of ulterior motives here. Um, but my first game was age six at a Mets game, and I figured I turned out all right. Uh, so I'm just entrusting, entrusting the Lord to him with this. But we're leaving the stadium at the end, and you, know, you have kind of the big stadium picture, and we're walking out, and I get this idea like, you know, can this be just a great picture of just you, little seven-year-old with a big stadium behind you? You're going to want to kind of hold on to that. So I'm like, Caden, stay there, stay there. But we're moving on, you know, pretty quick. And I take the picture quick. And I'm like, all right, let's go. And we get to the car and we drive home. And I pull out my phone that night to show Rochelle. Blurry. Blurry picture. It's no use. It was pointed at the right object. It had the right idea. But it's not clear. And it's kind of useless. In the same ways, churches can have the right mission as its goal. The right vision statement. But it can lose focus and lack clarity as to how that's going to happen. And so for this series, for four weeks, we're going to be in the same passage. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17, diving deep into Paul's time in the city of Athens. And my hope is that this passage will provide a blueprint for us as to what focused, contextualized ministry looks like. So this is week one of refocus. And the question is, where are we? Where are we? So would you join me as we read verses 16 to 22 of Acts 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. 
again, this passage and then on through uh, to verse 34. We're going to be breaking down over the next four weeks. But this morning, I actually just want to show us how verse 16, the first verse we read, how it reveals Paul's approach to the city of Athens. And in that, it's going to give us three principles to apply to our current context. Here's the three principles, and then we'll break them down. Um, One, embrace where we are. Second, see where we are. And third, understand where we are. So starting with number one, embrace where we are. You know the interesting thing about Paul being in Athens? Is that Paul did not want to be in Athens. Paul did not plan to be in Athens. Uh, Let let me kind of paint the picture as to how he got there. Um, Paul is on his second missionary journey. And earlier in Acts 17, he was in Thessalonica and was reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue there, as was his custom when he would first enter the city. He would go to the religious people. He would go to the synagogues. And God made his ministry fruitful there. And and, and some Jews in that city began to believe that Jesus was the Christ. And and what happens is uh, that makes a lot of other people angry. And so the leading Jews in that city formed a mob And Paul had to flee by night to the town of Berea with Timothy and Silas. And there, once again, they go to the local synagogue and they begin to reason with the Jews there. What happens? Luke tells us that the Jews in Berea were actually much more receptive. But then the crowd in Thessalonica heard about this and they go to Berea. And they want to start stirring things up there, right? Like these guys were like the first century version of social media trolls, all right? Like they just can't stand Paul, and they just want everything he touches, everything he goes around, he wants to ruin. And by the way, Berea, not the next town over, 45 miles away from Thessalonica. This is how much they hated Paul and wanted him gone. So now he needs to flee Berea. And Timothy and Silas take Paul to the coast. Now, for those of you who don't have the Middle Eastern map memorized in your mind, it's okay, I got you. There's going to be a map on the screen here that uh, on the right side, that's Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. And then you have Greece across the sea. The three red dots show the three cities in Acts 17. So you go to Berea, 45 miles And then Berea is a little bit inland, so it's about 26 miles from Berea to the coast. They flee to the coast. Picture this in your mind. This is basically like get to the docks, first boat available, Paul, you're on it. And this boat is going to Athens, 186 miles away. Apparently there's one spot on this boat, or for whatever reason, Timothy and Silas don't go, just Paul. To give you some context, basically the distance between Berea and Athens is the distance between Ridgewood and Providence, Rhode Island. And Paul gets off the dock at Athens, tells the crew to let his buddies know back in Berea to come to him as soon as they can. And then the boat takes off and Paul turns around and he's in Athens. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. This was not the plan. Paul did not end up in Athens by choice. But here's the thing for us. While he did not choose it, he did embrace it. While he did not choose where he was, 
He embraced where he was. You know why? Because Paul trusted that God doesn't make mistakes. And this was a time of waiting for Paul. I don't know the time it takes for a boat to go 186 miles uh, and then go back 186 miles. My guess is it's going to take a while. But even in the waiting, in a place where he did not choose to be or want to be, Paul chose to be faithful where he was. Grace Church, when it comes to refocusing on God's plan for your life and for our life as a church, step one is to embrace where you are, even if it's not where you want to be. Because God has you and God has me in this place at this time. If you're visiting from out of town and you're going home, wherever you're going to, that is where God has you at this time. And God does not make mistakes. So to be honest, maybe, maybe you're a kind of person, you, you just love it here. Maybe, maybe moving to the suburbs of New York City is where you always wanted to be, and you're here, and praise God for that. Embrace it. Maybe you grew up here, and you're like, I don't want to ever be anywhere else. Praise God. Embrace it. Maybe most of us are indifferent. Don't really have time to even think about whether you want to be here or not. You're just here. Okay, if that's where you are, embrace it. You're here. But I especially maybe want to speak to those who, if you're honest, maybe you've voiced this, maybe you haven't, but you actually don't like it here. You want out. Maybe you're making plans to leave this place in six months, a year, in five years. Maybe you say, I didn't choose to live here. This was not my first choice or second or third choice. And I concede to that, that maybe you did not choose it, but you can still embrace it. Paul did not choose to be in Athens, but he embraced that he was in Athens. Because again, while this might not be where you want to be, it is where you are, and God makes no mistakes. It's where God has Grace Church located in this place, in this time. So Grace Church, let's embrace where we are. That's number one. Number two, what Paul, what we see from Paul in verse 16 is to see where we are. So if number one is embrace where you are, number two is very simply, but vitally, see where you are. That phrase in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That phrase tells us something about Athens, and then more importantly, it tells us something about Paul. Um, at this point in history, Athens what was in the, quote, late afternoon of her glory, as one commentator put it. Uh, within the Roman Empire, uh, when Athens was in its golden age, the city was the center of commerce, the center of politics, of architecture, of philosophy. And that golden age was the 4th century B.C., about 400 years before Paul's ship arrives at the city docks. If you can probably recall from various uh, aspects of your own history classes in high school and college, you might remember Athens being most notable for the fact that it was home to the philosophical giants like Socrates and then Plato and Aristotle. It's also home to the Parthenon, which is one of the most famous buildings in world history, certainly Roman history. But by the time of the first century, these cities of Corinth and Ephesus kind of eclipsed Athens in terms of being the economic and political and cultural uh, hubs of the empire. Uh, but the city still had a legacy of a significant standing, particularly in the intellectual realm of philosophy. 
But the most vivid description Luke provides is that Paul saw that Athens was full of idols. Giving the impression that immediately upon entering the city, you could not miss it. Every building in the city of Athens had a representation of some Greek god or goddess. And so the fact that we are told this about Paul, I think it's telling for us because idolatry is not new to Paul. He's a Roman citizen. He's been in this empire his entire life. This is not his first missionary journey. It's his second. He's been around. So the fact that his spirit was provoked here tells us something about Athens, that the idolatry there must have been especially pervasive, just unescapable. But again, what's more important about that phrase in verse 16 is not what it tells us about Athens, but what it tells us about Paul. His spirit was provoked as he saw, as he observed the city around him. Guys, when we talk about our mission in this world, however you define it, and we know how we want to define that here at Grace, we often will immediately to start thinking about what we need to do, right? Like personal mission, mission in your marriage, maybe mission in your church. Like you just think about what do I got to do? Tell me what I have to do and when I have to do it. But carrying out your mission in this world will always start with what you feel, not what you do. We will ultimately all act upon our feelings and our affections, and everything Paul is going to do in Athens from verse 16 is going to stem from this phrase of what he felt in this moment. His spirit was provoked when he saw the idols. We're going to talk about what those idols might be in our time, in our place, in a moment. But first, I just want to focus on that word, provoked. Provoked. The word here means and carries a meaning to be deeply distressed. Um, Elsewhere in the Bible, Moses uses the same word in Deuteronomy 9, verse 7, when he says to Israel, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. And the prophet Isaiah uses the same word in Isaiah 65 when he says, The people of Israel provoked him. To his face continually. Why? Because they were sacrificing offerings to idols. So Paul is overcome with emotion. And again, this word, it's a mixture of grief, of anger towards the idols. Because, this is important, anger towards the idols because of his love and his desire for the people to know Jesus. This anger is not towards the people of Athens. This anger is towards the idols of Athens because it's holding the people of Athens captive. So Grace Church, again, if we are going to be serious about our mission to make disciples and to grow one another as disciples, then our spirits must be provoked by the way, in the same way that the false, that the idols provoked Paul in Athens. When we see the false gods, again, which we'll break into a little bit in a moment, when we see how they both distract us in our church and how they keep others from knowing the true God, it won't be that that provokes us that we can be serious about our mission. After thinking about this, and Pastor Joe and I just had a good kind of conversation and just kind of trying to kick this series off and be on the same page, um, 
we think there are really two main reasons why we at Grace Church might not be provoked in northern New Jersey in 2021 the way Paul was provoked in Athens. So these aren't the only ones, but these I think are two of the dominant ones. First is that we are so used to the idols we see and perhaps are immersed in them ourselves that they don't really bother us. Our spirit is not provoked towards the idols. And we can easily become numb to the ways that false gods distract us because that's just the way it is around here, man. It's the way it always has been and probably the way it always will be which then opens the door for those very idols to entangle us without fully realizing it until we're in too, too deep. And what happens is that exposes a deficiency of our view of holiness, that in a world created by a holy God, all things exist to glorify God, and we ought to be provoked and angered when things are elevated above God. It's a deficiency of holiness when we're not provoked. That's the first way. I think the second major way to not be provoked by idols in the way Paul was is to be so hardened against the world that we don't care about or love them enough to be provoked by the fact that they're held captive by them. So if the first one's a deficiency of holiness, this one's a de deficiency of compassion for our neighbor. And rather over grieve um, over what we see and grieving that we're seeing people just held captive by the idols around us, rather what we choose to do is we rail against the world and we rail against the people and this culture is going to hell in a handbasket and everything's awful and you just wait till God comes back and judges you all and our mentality is just everything's awful and we're on social media or we're in conversations with people and we're bitter and we're angry and we're criticizing and we just almost love railing against those God has called us to reach. It's a deficiency of compassion. But if our spirit is going to be provoked in the way that refocuses our mission, it's going to require both a high view of holiness and a high level of compassion. It's going to require a love for God and a love for neighbor. Because the love for God is going to make you angry at how those idols blind people and distract us. And a love for neighbor is going to make you want to see them delivered from those idols and play a part in it. So if we want to refocus our mission, we need to second see where we are. And then that moves us to number three. We need to understand where we are. Every local church needs to identify what the major idols of their place and time are. This saying's a little outdated, but it still gets the point across. It's an old saying that if a pastor wants to be effective in leading his church, he needs to have a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. And the meaning of that is you have to understand the God of Scripture and you have to understand the false gods of the culture and then lead accordingly. And that's going to look different for every church no matter where you are located. Because that is what an idol is. An idol is a false God. Let me put a uh, kind of more complete definition up on the screen. This is from a pastor named uh, Tony Morita. He defines an idol as, as anything to which we turn when we need something only Jesus can provide. That's good. Idols aren't just statues worshipped as shrines. They are substitute gods and functional saviors that supplant the true and living God in the human heart. 
So the idols of northern New Jersey in 2021 will not only impact our ability to reach a lost world and to shine the light of Christ in a lost world, but it also threatens to draw us away from God and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And the thing about idols, what makes it so difficult, because inherently they might not always be something quote-unquote bad, but most times the most dangerous idols are good things that then serve to distract us. And our enemy loves distracted people. He loves distracted people who never turn to Christ. And he loves distracted Christians, or even if you're in Christ, to make you so busy that you won't fellowship or make disciples of a lost world. So again, just in conversations with um, Pastor Joe and the leadership this past week, just for time's sake, I just want to offer three major idols in northern New Jersey in 2021. This list probably could be 30, but I just want to give us three to think about this morning. Number one, a church in the suburbs has to battle against the idol of comfort. The idol of comfort. You know, the story of the suburbs really takes off in the middle of the 20th century following World War II. Um, in the U.S., suburban populations went from being 15% of the country's population in 1940 to 31% of the country's population in 1960. In just 20 years, that's a major demographic shift. And by 1970, America's suburban population doubled to 74 million, again, in a span of 30 years. As a side note, Grace Church was founded in 1946. We're going to plan on celebrating our 75th anniversary later this fall. And Grace Church was founded and grew quickly due in part to the fact that the growth in this area exploded after World War II. In Ridgewood, 1940, there were 14,000 people in this town. In 1960, it grew 80% to 25,000 and that is where it currently lands because you can't put people anywhere else in this town. <laughs> and so if you ask what drove that population growth at that time, uh, there is a combination of things. Um, increased and more reliable transportation to and from the city where many people worked. But ultimately, if you kind of read the accounts, it was the promise of comfort that the suburban area would provide that the city didn't. It was quieter, cleaner, safer, more spacious than the city. People would go to the suburbs to settle. You settle in a home because you're already settled in a job and you want to settle your kids in a school system. Not bad desires in and of themselves, but how often that can lead to idolizing the suburbs as a place where I'm just going to be comfortable and I want comfort above everything else. And the goal, what often happened, and I think even around here you can say that the goal to move to the safe suburbs then joined a movement that wanted to keep it safe at all costs. In her book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Ashley Hales writes this, and I'm going to put it on the screen. This one packs a little bit of a punch. She says, quote, Our suburbs are more often than not built to keep people out rather than welcome people in. 
The reality is in the population boom of the 40s, 50s, and 60s in the suburbs, including Ridgewood, the system was built to allow only certain kind of people because comfort requires sameness. I want to look the same. I want to be the same skin color. I want to be in the same socioeconomic status as those around me. And you can go to the things that were put in place to make that happen, from not granting GI bills to buy homes to black soldiers after World War II, like they were given to white soldiers, to real estate agents engaging in redlining, only allowing non-whites to buy homes in very specific streets that were marked off with a red marker on the map. Because you see, when comfort is your God, it becomes a major distraction to the life that the one, God, one true God calls you to live. You can comb the scriptures. You will not find once God calling his people to prioritize their own comfort over the needs of others, over a love for neighbor. If we're going to reach the suburbs, we need to confront and acknowledge the idol of comfort. Second, the idol of success. Here I'm going to quote our very own Pastor Joe. He hasn't even written the book, but I'm just quoting him from a conversation that we had this past week in regards to, again, this series. And he's coming from a vantage point of somebody who has lived both in Manhattan and New Jersey back and forth a couple different times while working at Redeemer for the past decade before then coming to Grace. He said this, John, I don't know if you remember you said this, but I wrote it down. People move to the city in order to make it. And then people move to the suburbs because they've made it. And I know we're faced to paint with a broad brush here and that this isn't necessarily true for every single person, especially maybe for those who grew up here like I did. But in general, let's be honest, guys, there's a lot of successful people around here as the world defines success. And again, that's not a bad thing. It's not something to feel guilty about um, uh, by any stretch. But from a Christian worldview, it is something that we have to be so careful about because uh, with success, either the constant striving for it or the possession of it can so easily rob our affections from the Lord and distract us away from the measure of success that God gives to know Him and make Him known. That's God's scorecard. That's not the world's scorecard but how often we can be distracted by playing by the world's rules. And the flip side of a desperate desire to be successful that I think we face much more in the suburbs than we realize or admit is that the flip side of a desperate desire to be successful is the very real, real fear of failure. Fear of being known or seen as a failure by other successful people. And that fear can tend to drive us and make us obsessed and makes us anxious. And so what happens is we can't stop working because if we stop working, we're going to get left behind and won't be as successful. We can't fail. We have to have our kids signed up for absolutely everything because they can't fail or fall behind their peers. And we're constantly measuring ourselves with other successful people. And while, while many, if not most of us, would say, no, we don't struggle with this because I can point to so-and-so that has way more money than I do. They work way longer than I do. They have a title far beyond mine. When you're always benchmarking against other successful people, you often don't realize how consumed you are with your own status or standing and how that we care about it way more than we like to admit. 
So there's a fear of failure, which leads to always striving. And it's among the most dangerous, dangerous um, ethics to the gospel. Because what's the gospel say? It says you can't earn anything on your own in front of God. You can't contribute to your own salvation at all. It's only by freely confessing our failure to follow God's law that we receive the mercy of grace. Again, you go through the Bible and you go throughout church history and you can read about all the people who failed to admit their guilt, but rather they just try to kind of conceal it inside, tough it out on their own, and you see how well it works out for them. And you compare that to those who bring their guilt, bring their shame, bring their failure to Jesus and see every time how they receive mercy and restoration. If we're going to make disciples in the suburbs, we need to confront the idol of success that is all around us. And then third, and the last just for this morning due to time, this one I need, I need to unpack a little bit. It's the idol of freedom. The idol of freedom. In general, I think the idea and desire for total individual freedom across the board at all costs has been and continues to be the primary idol of all of Western culture. And so what I mean when I say freedom in this way is, again, the mentality that I'm the owner of my life, I decide what's right for me, and nobody can tell me the difference. And there's a lot of manifestations of this. I think at this point in time, the most passionate and heavily defended freedom tends to revolve around the area of sex and sexuality and gender and our bodies. And again, it bears repeating that an idol is often rooted in something good. It's rooted in something good, but it's elevated to a point where it eclipses God and his design of the world. So much of the language that revolves around sexual freedom today is, is language that's in the areas of justice and areas of equity. Uh, you, you hear it about human rights, right? Or, or, or the unborn's rights or women's rights or LGBTQ rights. And, and certainly we know and we affirm, we sang about it this morning, Joe prayed about it, that God is a God of justice. That all people in all places are made in the image of God. The church should be saying that first and foremost. That there's a baseline, foundational respect and dignity that's afforded to all people just for the very fact that they are image bearers. But then what happens is that that is then elevated as an ideology that becomes intolerant of anyone or anything that would disagree with their absolute sovereignty over their own bodies. To say today or even hint at the fact that you believe in the God of the Bible who is the designer of this world and he has a design and has the authority as to how sex is to be regulated in the name of human flourishing, to speak of that is to be heretical to a secular ideology of sex. And we're finding continually more and more there's nothing more intolerant than the so-called tolerance movement. You will be casted out. And in order to protect their freedom, they must strip you of your freedom to believe in the sexual ethics of God as outlined in his word. So again, that's a primary manifestation of this kind of total autonomous freedom, but we have to be honest that it extends even beyond that, that many even professing Christians 
uh, in history and today justify ungodly behavior such as violence, such as disrespect towards some people in those communities, having no love for your neighbor who don't share the same political views as you, or, and, and do that in the name of freedom, protecting my freedom. And in the suburbs, this idol of freedom can and does distract us from the mission to make disciples where we are called to willingly, where we don't compromise our biblical ethics, we are called to give up our freedom for the interest of others. So Grace, as we set to close for this morning, the question for me, I've been asking myself all week, the question I ask you, is your spirit provoked when you see the idols of comfort the idol of success, the idol of individual freedom all around us. Meaning, are you grieved when you go about your days and witness the strongholds that hold so many people captive? Are you angered at the things that threaten to distract you from growing in your relationship with Christ and his people? Are you driven by a desire to see people, image bearers all around you, to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to topple those strongholds in the name of Jesus Christ? Before we refocus our mission in terms of what we do, we must first refocus our mission in terms of what we feel in the place that God has called us to be in this moment. This is how a church grows, not just in spiritual knowledge, but in spiritual maturity, that we commit to love our God in such a way that will make us grieve the idols all around us. And we commit to love our neighbor, which will fuel us to engage with the people who are held captive to them. And that's where we're going to pick it up next week to see how Paul, upon seeing and understanding the idols of Athens, then chooses to engage with the city out of his deep love for them, even though he just met them. But let us conclude with first sitting in the truth of verse 16, of pausing and reflecting on our own lives and then our corporate life as a church. In the midst of the day in, day out, routine of life, it's getting into fall, things are so busy, they're going to get busier. Grace Church, can we affirm that Christ is enough for us? Brothers and sisters, is Christ enough for you? Not that he's the only thing you value, but who he is and what he has done is what you value most. Church, is he enough for you? Because Paul is doing in Athens, and what he is doing in Athens is only done because of what Christ had done for him. It was Jesus who was provoked in his spirit when he saw the idols that kept people captive. It was Jesus who was willingly sent by the Father to take on flesh and empty himself on the cross to be obedient even unto death. So for the joy set before him, many will live by his sacrifice. Jesus did not bow to the idol of comfort. Jesus did not give in to the idol of success. And Jesus did not prioritize his individual freedom over those he came to serve. And so let it be That by the power of the Holy Spirit, he can move in us. Because when Christ is truly enough for us, we can be excited about where we are. 
We can have the eyes to see where we are. And finally, we can have the hearts to understand where we are. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful how your word continually confronts us and assures us. It confronts our preconceived notions. It confronts our worldly wisdom. It confronts the idols that we can be held captive by ourselves. And, Father, this same word assures us that those idols can be toppled in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that your Spirit would testify to that this morning, to all those who are here, to all those who are watching. That as we examine our own hearts and as we examine our heart as a church, that we truly would embrace it, that we would see it, and we would seek to understand it. That this is the mission you've called us to, Lord. We pray that you would just increase our passion to pour ourselves out for this, knowing how this ends, knowing the victory that you've already declared. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.